Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald, he is Saeed Jones, and you are watching AM to DM. All right, let's talk about sex, baby. Wait, let's talk about sharks. What? I have the song <laughs> stuck in my head. I have been practicing this damn intro all morning and I messed it up, y'all. Now, baby, it's live television. Take two, do it. <clears throat> Let's talk about sharks, baby. Let's talk about you and me. <laughs> Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things about this tweet from KSAT12. Thank you for having me back with No problem, I got you, baby. Let's Ooh, talk about sharks, go. baby. Um, police are looking for a trio of thieves who stole a shark from the San Antonio Aquarium over the weekend by stuffing it into a stroller. The culprits have since <laughs> been captured and the shark is back in the aquarium now, but here's what Ashley Feinberg had to say. The thing is, at least one person definitely saw these dudes picking up a shark, wrapping it in a blanket, and putting it in a stroller, and thought to themselves, well, guess that's how they do things here. Oh my God, I love this story so much. It's I love this story so much. All right, so they stole the shark yep. on Saturday. Mm -hmm. uh, suspects have been apprehended, okay? And uh, the police have said that there's been one confession. But the way that they did it was if you see, if you look at the videotape, it's like white trash Ocean's Eleven. It's like <laughs> dirtbag Ocean's Eleven. It's just three folks going, I, I was gonna say strolling, okay, but they, they're walking with a stroller, all right? One of them, they have the baby in their arm. That means they took a baby out of the stroller and then they, they wrapped it. Isaac's obsessed with it. It was a horn shark. They wrapped it in a wet blanket, put it in the baby stroller, and walked out of the aquarium. I'm glad the shark's okay, because I don't know if this whole wet blanket thing was such a good idea. It is a alone. very important Within a bad idea, another bad idea. <laughs> the shark is fine. The shark has been returned to the aquarium. Here's my thing. <laughs> well, there are two things, and I know Ashley Feinberg's tweet kind of gets to it. First of all, what happened to see something, say something, y'all? It's an aquarium. <laughs> it's a damn aquarium. You know, plenty of people saw them. It's literally nothing but glass and water. You can see everything that is going on in a damn aquarium, and plenty of tourists were like, Huh. If you watch the footage, they're not. it's not like they're even done up in fake uniforms or anything. That said, I, you don't know, man. This is how we ended up with the America we got. Y'all seeing crazy shit going down. Do you know how kidding. they move sharks normally? Maybe it isn't baby strollers. Oh you gosh. don't know. Okay, the other thing is... Uh, I just want to know why they did this. I'm fascinated. Were were they like smuggling the shark? <laughs> or you know, I, I don't. It just did they want a pet shark? Was it just like I they mean, were just? What does a horn shark shark go for on the open market? I will say oh. this. Yeah. What? No, no, no. I will say this. They do have the confession, but one thing they don't know yet. That's the one thing they don't know is why they did it. I love the idea that they just watched Shark Week for like a week. Got we're hyped. super hyped, Got and we're hyped. just like, we got to get a shark. They were like, I'm going in. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's take it to the timeline. I want answers, friends. What do you think was the shark thieves' motivation? Why mm. did they do it? Mm. What's going on? Uh, let us know using the hashtag, Trump is scared of sharks. <laughs> you think they were like political activists? They're taking it to They DC? were like, Pennsylvania Avenue, you scared? <laughs> I don't know what sharks make, but bark, bark, motherfucker. I you know. like the idea that maybe they're animal rights activists. <laughs> maybe they were trying to free That's Willie. That's true. Don't add us. All right. Yeah. Hey, shark. Y'all just stay. Shark away. activists be coming from Chill. Yeah. yeah. Peace. <laughs> All right. Now let's talk about Vogue. 
Beyonce for September? Groundbreaking. <laughs> but for real, it is it is actually groundbreaking. groundbreaking. Here's a tweet from Yashar Ali who got the scoop. Beyonce selected Tyler Mitchell to shoot her Vogue cover this year, making the 23-year-old the first black photographer to shoot the cover of Vogue in its 126-year history. 126 years. Can you believe here's, I can believe mm. because here mm. we are. Here's what Michelle Norris, we love her, she had to say, thrilled that Beyonce arranged for a black photographer to do her cover shoot for Vogue, but but ahem, why was Beyonce the one to correct this decades-long omission and not, oh, I don't know, Vogue magazine? Right? Can you imagine? I wonder what Andre Leon Talley is thinking this morning, but that's another conversation. One of the things I was thinking, could you imagine just being like, oh, you know what? All right, this is going to be mm-hmm. it. It's going to be Anna Wintour's mm-hmm. last issue, let's do something amazing. We're gonna have Beyonce just run the whole thing, basically be editor-in-chief. Uh, is there anything we might want to do between now and then? Anything? Mm-hmm. You know, right? Mm. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I'm sorry. I was not going to say this, but can I be honest what I was thinking Please. about? Please. It's like when George Washington was dying and I was like, I'm going to free all the slaves on my plantation when I'm dead. I'm sorry. That's literally what crossed my mind. Like, there's a long, weird history of this. Like, yeah, I'm going to do the right thing when I'm no longer. When I'm, I'm not. You know, it's not like that kind of thing. But that is what that's what went through. When when I'm out. But there have been plenty of opportunities. I mean, again, you know, I, I mentioned Andre Leon Talley. You know, a significant black gay editor who worked at Vogue magazine for a long time. This isn't on him, but I, was this a conversation that was going on? It's not like Anna Wintour wasn't running Vogue for all of the Obama presidency. Like, seems like there are a lot of opportunities there. It's just, whatever. We're not stealing the glow from what Beyonce is doing here. We are pointing out the incredibly obvious. To, to, to turn the spotlight on to Beyonce, right. it is quite amazing that she keeps finding these new, new ways, in my opinion, to kind of raise the bar. It'd be very easy for her to kind of sit on her throne mm. right now and just take the accolades and kick a bunch of ass. Uh, but the actual, like, she's like, you know what? I'm going to create an entire issue myself. It's pretty amazing. Shout out to her. She loves yeah. us. And shout she out to us. that photographer, 23 yes. years Ty old, going to change his life. Whole game, whole game. Well, until September, we've got this shady tweet from George M. Johnson that I love. Beyonce getting advice from Anna Wintour for the September issue. Like, <laughs> I couldn't even say it. I just Here's, love it. I'm out. Just like, girl, get out of here. Out. I got I do, this. Anna Wintour, I do like the idea that she's like, oh, I'm this close to retiring and I'm just going to not even show up to work mm-hmm. for the last month. <laughs> yeah. I wonder who, because I don't think we know who is going to take over for Vogue after Anna Wintour. Maybe this is signaling. Maybe there's that. All right. Beyonce a, a, a test run? All right. A test Let's run? turn now to this tweet from Zoe Zaldana. If you please read the statement written and signed by the Guardians of the Galaxy cast in support of James Gunn's reinstatement as director of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. That tweet has over 35,000 retweets and over 100,000 likes. Um, There's a very complicated conversation going on around this. Um, And basically, if you read the letter, what they're saying is, listen, Disney knew about those tweets. Mm. Yes, they are terrible tweets, but Disney already knew about those tweets. James Gunn had already apologized for them. So why is he punished now Mm. is basically what they're trying to get to. But this conversation, it's complicated. It's complicated and fascinating, frankly. James Gunn, again, is just one of the people who kind of found themselves kind of caught up in this dynamic. So we wanted to broaden the aperture a bit because it feels like these stories kind of keep happening and it's like, where did they come from? What's happening? I wanted to highlight this thread about James Gunn from Mario. Uh, The discourse around James Gunn's firing is annoying because yes, he is a white man and he'll be fine. Um, So defending him personally is not a life or death struggle, but that's entirely beside the point. The point is not to let right-wing Pizzagate people 
easily manipulate shit. I think that's the manipulation exactly. that's worth paying attention easily to. Easily manipulate shit. And where do these, where, where do stories like this come from? In James Gunn's case, like we said, he truly had some terrible tweets and Mike Cernovich and a lot of other people helped surface them. But there are many other stories that are having IRL consequences that are based on absolutely nothing that keep coming up. BuzzFeed News reporter Ishmael Andaro tweeted, this is how bullshit spreads. If you searched for Tom Hanks on YouTube this week, your top results were QAnon, conspiracy videos claiming that he is a pedophile. This is just fascinating, mm -hmm. fascinating and wild. Ishmael Indaro joins us now from BuzzFeed's office in Toronto. Good morning, Ishmael. Good morning. All right, so listen, who, what, why uh, is QAnon? What's going on? <laughs> Well, <clears throat> so QAnon is an interesting one, and it's not that different from Pizzagate, if, we, if you remember Pizzagate. That was the totally sensible idea that there was some kind of a child sex ring in the basement of a pizza shop. So that kind of fizzled out because of, of course, you know, there was never any evidence to suggest any of that was true. But QAnon is sort of uh, on the same lines, that the, the, the allegation is that there's all these powerful people who are involved in satanic you know, child abuse rituals, and and it's really all based on these very cryptic posts on 4chan and 8chan. If you read them, you know, they're very, they sort of hint at stuff happening, you know, powerful people are coming down, you know, uh, stay glued to your screens, it's coming soon, it's coming soon. And this has, a you know, thousands of followers, as far as I can tell, who hang on to these posts and are convinced that any day now, um, President Trump and you know, other allies in the government and in the military are going to take down all the elites who are involved in all, all these horrible crimes. In all these horrible crimes. I want to bring it back to Tom Hanks. What the hell <laughs> does poor old Tom Hanks have to do with any of this? That is a great question. So I trace this back to a single Twitter user. Um, and as far as I can tell, that's where the claim comes from. And this person said that Tom Hanks abused her when she was 13 or 14 years old while she was under mind control. Now, I just want to make clear that this is, you know, it, there's no evidence uh, presented for this claim. This appears to be, you know, pretty fantastical. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that just got sucked into the larger QAnon conspiracy because evidence is not really the main driving force of this movement. It's much more about, you know, they're out to get you and the rich and powerful are all in on this together. So poor, you know, Tom Hanks got dragged into this and people were looking at old photos and old tweets of, that he had sent. You know, I think he, there was one tweet, he had found a single child's shoe sitting on a lawn somewhere and he had just taken a photo and said, oh, some kid lost their shoe. Of course, this was interpreted in the worst possible light. So it's all of that stuff. It, and then YouTube. So the real story, I think, is that YouTube and Twitter and all these platforms uh, where these conspiracies live and thrive this week, uh, if you search for Tom Hanks on YouTube, the very first two or three results were about how he was a pedophile, which, again, there's no proof whatsoever about any of that. Right, yeah. So it, it's not just that, that these are bizarre, ridiculous conspiracies. They have impact. Certainly in the case of Pizzagate, I mean, my goodness, uh, someone's life, you know. Uh, my question is, why does pedophile keep manifesting in these conspiracies. That's something I have not understood in terms of why it seems to keep be the focal point. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. I, I mean, if you look at conspiracies, if you've been following conspiracies for a long time, you know, even going back to the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s, when all these parents were convinced that their children were being inducted into, you know, satanic rituals in schools by, by teachers, 
you know, that also had to do with children. And I think there's something about child welfare that maybe short circuits at people's general skepticism. And they think, oh, my God, if children are at stake, maybe that makes it a little more believable. Hmm. That's the best theory that I've come up with. Uh, but it is definitely a common thread in a lot of these pretty out there conspiracy theories. Yeah, and I love that you brought up the history of it because there is that is a really great way of tapping into fear. Uh, listen, I know you're following this story closely. Do we have any idea of kind of what QAnon is planning next, what they're alluding to? Um, and are they excited that they're becoming more and more mainstream? Well, I think actually the story is the, going the other way. Uh, lots of hardcore believers who were holding on for months and months and months for this great big news event, you know, this big bust or for President Trump to finally crack down on all the pedophiles. You know, it hasn't happened. So you've actually seen over the last several months, uh, people starting to drift away and some really hardcore believers starting to get on their own YouTube channels and saying like, you know, this stuff isn't working out. Like it could be, it could be a trap. <laughs> so remember in a conspiracy theory, there's always a second layer. There's always a second layer. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Ishmael. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. All right, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. In June, we asked readers to fill out a 10-question survey about sex and consent in the age of Me Too. After more than 30,000 responses, here are your thoughtful and honest answers. And honest answers. Tommy Obaro, one of the BuzzFeed culture editors behind that survey, joins us now to talk about those very honest answers. Tommy, good morning. Good morning. So what was the overall goal of this consent survey? So basically we just wanted to hear from people, from people honestly about their thoughts on sex and consent. You know, like there've been so many stories about powerful people being brought down and we just wanted to know whether or not it was actually sparking change or, or dialogue among like regular lay folk. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the questions are interesting. Um, was there one question either before or once you started to get res results that you found especially um, fascinating? Yeah, I mean, I think the question about reconsidering past relationships in light of Me Too was definitely the most interesting as far as responses go. People were very honest, um, just in general throughout the survey. Like, we got so many responses, and the majority of them, people were sort of really reconsidering and, and going in and thinking about, well, yeah, in, in this context or in that relationship, I do think that, you know, that, that maybe wasn't consensual. Right. Um, so, yeah, it did spark a lot of dialogue and thought. And we're bringing that up uh, kind of right now as you're talking about them, Tommy. Um, there was also, a, I mean, there was a couple of answers about Me Too. Uh, one, that, one of the things that touched me about the survey was how the age range that you got in responses. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about there was an older woman who responded to wishing she had it in the 1950s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got quite a, a wide range. We got people who were like 13 and people who were in their 70s. And this woman in particular was was talking about how, um, yeah, now she she really wishes that Me Too was available when, you know, in, in the 1950s when she was a young woman, because there just wasn't that language around consent in the same way. And she talks about how she ended up being in relationships that in retrospect now, she says, were, were abusive and weren't consensual. And just at the time, there was no way to really talk about those things and to advocate for herself 
in the bedroom in the way that she wished she could now. Mm -hmm. um, later this morning, I'm going to be talking with uh, two reporters um, about Me Too and kind of like a check-in in terms of where we are now and some of the questions that have emerged. Something I've noticed is that you, you often see language, I would say, from men um, that, you know, Me Too has taken down another person um, mm -hmm. or that Me Too has made us all terrified, that, it, that it's, you know, we have like a sex panic and people are afraid to even, in Henry Cavill's case, flirt or ask someone out on a date because of Me Too. Um, mm -hmm. All these preconceptions. So I wanted to ask you, as someone who looked at responses from 30,000 people, what was your general sense about how people feel about sex? Does it seem like people are just overwhelmed with anxiety or, or that something else is going on? I think for the most part, people were very thoughtful, especially from straight men, surprisingly. Um, well, I mean, I guess that means I have such a low bar <laughs> straight men generally, but I was like, oh, overthinking. Um, and that, I mean, I think that was probably the most heartening thing about going through all of those responses. Like we had straight men who were like, yeah, I realize, um, I think one of, I don't know if we included this quote, but there was one guy who was like, um, you know, I used to pressure my girlfriends to send me nudes. And now I realize like how selfish that was and how wrong that was. Um, another guy who was like, yeah, like I pressured my girlfriend into sex. Um, she started crying when, when it was done. And, and then I began reading more about rape culture and sort of learning how much sexual rejection made me feel like less of a man and you know how how wrong that is mm. um and then we also had you know there were some responses from straight women who were like you know i had to think about the times when i initiated sex forcefully with a man and i was sort of like oh well because he's a straight man he he always wants to have sex all the time you know and then we had gay men who were talking about hey, hey like when i'm in a in a gay bar i'm not just gonna like grab someone's ass you know i'm gonna ask permission first um so for the most part i think People were very, very thoughtful. And I do think that this movement has sparked a lot of, of, of introspection. Right. Well, I appreciate you and your team uh, doing the survey and creating these conversations because these are important questions. So thank you so much, Tomi. Thank you. All right, friends. And let's take it to the timeline. Here's one, one of the 10 questions from the survey. What does consent mean to you um, in the context of sex? Let us know your thoughts using the hashtag AM to DM. Hashtag AM to DM. It is. It's such a fascinating conversation. Real quick, though, we yes. wanted to make a correction before we go to break. All right. Yes. We don't want nobody coming for us. Luckily, it wasn't the shark Especially people. Especially Nuclear Wintour. Uh, Condé Nast is denying right now that Anna Wintour is leaving Vogue. That's just a very loud mm. rumor. Very mm. loud mm. rumor. But right now, the official line from Condé Nast is that, nope, she's not leaving. She's not leaving. She's just taking a September vacation. All right, we'll be right back with Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! <laughs> we, we, I'm sorry, I looked up and you were dancing and it cracked me up. Uh, we asked you guys what... What those shark thieves, what were their motivations? Mm. What were they thinking? Are they inside the mind of a shark thief? Are they shark activists? Uh, and I love one of you guys just straightforward on the timeline just said they wanted to own a shark. Which, I, you know, sometimes the simplest answer is maybe the right answer. They just wanted a pet you shark. Know, that actually reminds me. Just yesterday I saw um, there's an article. I need to find it um, about like the elite rich owning really exotic sharks and finding out that. Spoiler, they're actually very difficult pets. Did you see <laughs> you that don't yesterday? Say. Sharks? They hard to take care of? Who, Who guessed? Who would have guessed? <laughs> anyway, first fire tweet comes from Rudy Mustang. Every horse movie ever. People don't think this horse can go fast, but it do. It go real fast. <laughs> 
movie, War Horse, uh, Biscuits. And every damn time when it See, starts going fast, you're sitting there crying. <laughs> you're like, like, you better go. It goes so fast. Go, Sea Biscuit. This <laughs> thing <laughs> comes from Kevin Wynn. I relate to Movie Pass in that I am a disappointment that is hemorrhaging money. Mm. Okay, let's Ooh, talk real, about this. Real. Uh, did you? I never had a movie pass. Me either. Me either. I meant to. It was on my to-do list. Mm -hmm. If you know me, there. This is a, a pattern. But um, what a tragedy! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, did it sounded cool. It, it sounded cool, like so many things. It sounded cool. <laughs> I think they were really hoping to maybe be bots, and uh, but happen. I don't think the business plan was quite where it needed uh, to be. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well. But all right. Hey, our condolences. I know a lot of people are sad about it. Our condolences. Rest in peace, startup. Uh, this comes from Jody. You ever just see people from your hometown that start dating and it's so random that you're like, damn, okay, they really ran out of people over there. <laughs> Indeed, Jody. Hmm. I just don't tweet about it. <laughs> <laughs> I text it, though. I sure do. I just, uh -huh. uh, you know what? Hometown drama sometimes best drama. <laughs> All right. I Rosenbaum tweeted, This evening I passed a bodega cat outside a store and someone explained she was just coming from the other bodega around the corner where she works during the day. That's right. Times are so tough. Even the bodega cat has two jobs. Damn. Mm. The rent is too damn high. Hard out here for those bodega cats. Woo! They got to bring their cuteness all over. Day shift and night shift. I love, I'm sorry. I just, I just I really love that tweet. <laughs> all right, this tweet today comes from AJ. Ready? It all makes sense now. Imagine working from nine to five and coming back and your kid didn't take the chicken out of the freezer. <laughs> Woo, let's discuss. Now I saw this tweet this morning and I was cracking up and I had to, this happens sometimes in the production meeting and I like looked at the white people in the room and I was like, does this happen with white kids and their parents too? It does. Yeah. It does. Uh, I, I'm just saying, I, as the older I get, the more sympathetic to my mother I get. Yeah. Those hits upside the head. <laughs> I get All it. All you, you had, had to, to do. do. Here's the thing. I'm sitting there watching Guiding Light. <laughs> Keep going. Here's the thing. I've done it to myself as an adult. <laughs> I spend a whole day being like, yeah, I took that steak out of the freezer. Great. And then I get home and I'm like, I didn't do it. Like, what am I going to eat for dinner now? Getting mad at past Saeed. Well, listen, up next, we are going live from the district. And if Emma Luke didn't take that chicken out of the freezer, I swear to God. Young lady. Young lady. This is ridiculous. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Emma Loop. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Hi there. All right, so here's a tweet from our own Zoe Tillman. It's 6.13 a.m. and a line is just starting to form outside the federal courthouse in Alexandria, Virginia, where jury selection is starting today in Paul Manafort's first trial. Uh, Emma, uh, what's the tea on Manafort's trial today? What do we know? So what we know is that they're picking uh, the jury today. That's uh, the first step here in this uh, highly anticipated trial, and uh, it should be a doozy. All right, and what charges is Paul Manafort facing? So I actually, for once, have notes because uh, the list is so long. Um, he's facing five counts of filing false income tax returns, four counts of failing to report foreign bank accounts, five counts of bank fraud conspiracy, and four counts of bank fraud laundering more than $30 million to hide profits he earned from his work overseas. And do we have a sense, because uh, that's a lot, um, it seems to me, um, do we have a, a sense how long this trial is expected to go on? 
So the prosecution is expected to uh, take about two to three weeks to present their arguments. All right, two to three. I mean, that's not that long. Um, are there any stakes for the Trump administration here? Seems like there are. I mean, this is not related to his work as the campaign chairman during the summer of 2016, but certainly the optics of having the former campaign chairman in uh, going to trial for, you know, these, this long list of, of charges is not a good thing. Not a good thing. Well, here's a tweet from the Washington Post. Top FEMA official allegedly harassed women for years, hiring some as possible sexual partners for male employees, agency chief says. So, Emma, who is the former FEMA official being investigated here? So according to the Washington Post, it's a former official named Corey Coleman. He was the head of the personnel department. So someone who was actually overseeing kind of personnel policies and employees at the department. Wait, 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 wait. So his job was literally, you know, like how people got hired and, and like the employee experience at FEMA. Is that fair to say? Wow. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Emma's just like, yeah, just, it is, it is as crazy as it sounds. Yep. Well, to that end, uh, can you go into some of the complaints against him? So he was, he is accused of hiring, you know, his friends, his former fraternity uh, brothers, um, and as well as women he met at bars and on dating apps uh, and trying to get his friends um, sexual encounters with these women that he hired and of shuffling women in and out of departments to try to match them up and pair them up with his friends. And he's also accused of, of sexual harassment from, uh, from a couple employees as well. This is absolutely wild. How long was he at FEMA? He was at FEMA since 2011. So he came there from the Secret Service where he was also overseeing personnel and kind of HR issues at, uh, at the Secret Service. And he came over in 2011 and then he resigned in June as this investigation was ongoing. I'm, I'm truly stunned. Um, I guess, again, you know, because he came from Secret Service where he had a similar role. Um, is, there, is there a bigger story here that might be emerging about how people are vetted for these government agencies? I think that's a great question. It does raise serious questions and serious concerns about how he was allowed to stay in the job so long if, you know, these accusations against him are true. Uh, it seems like, he, according to the Washington Post story, he had created quite a toxic atmosphere for people to work in, and there had been complaints that had been lodged uh, in 2015, but it's unclear what happened then and why this is only, uh, you know, coming out now. And uh, But this is also, you know, this is a, a moment of reckoning for for American society as well. This is broader, I think, than the government where, you know, uh, perpetrators like this, accused perpetrators like this are being, you know, kind of fettered out and being, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, held to account for their actions in an age where, you know, women are feeling a little bit more confident about, you know, taking on these types of issues and organizations are a bit more receptive. And we're grateful for that. Well, Emma, wild story. Um, as always, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Here's a tweet from the president. The globalist Koch brothers who have become a total joke in real Republican circles are against strong borders and powerful trade. I never sought their support because I don't need their money or bad ideas. They love my tax and regulation cuts, <laughs> judicial picks and more. And here's a tweet from our own Emily Tampkin. Please help. I hear 
They love my tax and regulation cuts, judicial picks, and more. As a lyric from Fergalicious, I'm sorry that I, I, I botched that one. I think I was thinking more of the Lady Lump song. Uh, but joining us now to talk about this story is BuzzFeed News White House correspondent Tarini Party. Tarini, good morning. Good morning, guys. I also now have Fergalicious and my stuck in my head, so thank you for that. <laughs> we even pulled it up and played it a bit before the show, trying to figure out like which lyric. Maybe you can ask Emily if you see her today. Look, don't don't. I will. I'm just gonna keep doing it. Okay, I'm just dancing. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Uh, Tarini, why is Trump taking on? I mean, a powerful set of enemies, the Koch brothers. So this past weekend was this big gathering of the Koch Network with 500 conservative donors. Uh, the Koch Network is this cluster of groups that was founded by Charles Koch, and we know we know them best for their involvement, of course, in political activities and and their 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 policy pushes that they've done over the years. But what they did at this this gathering was they pretty strongly criticized President Trump. There were officials who said that uh, President Trump has been too divisive. They said he's caused long-term damage. Um, they, they really used language that they have not in, in this past year. They also criticized some of his policies. They said his protectionist approach on trade and immigration has been damaging to the country. They warned that it could really lead to uh, a situation potentially like North and S South Korea. Uh, uh, you know, when Germany was divided, there were some parallels drawn with those types of countries. Um, so, you know, this was pretty strong language. And as we know, the president doesn't have the, the thickest skin. So uh, this, this seems to have gotten to him. This hmm. seems to have gotten to him. Trini, I've got to ask, uh, why now? Why are the Koch brothers distancing themselves from the president now? Or has this been building up? So this has been building up since 2016, you know, in the in the run up to the presidential election, they actually did not endorse uh, Trump. Uh, they they one of their former top officials actually went to go work for the Trump campaign and Mark Short. And then he went on to become the president's direct, uh, legislative director until recently when he left. So there were close associations between the Koch network and the White House, but they were not willing to endorse him during the campaign. When he got elected, they worked with him on tax reform and judicial nominations, things like that. But they disagreed strongly on trade policy. They're really not happy with him on uh, some of the actions he's he's taken related to tariffs. And so they were educating their donors on this. And um, a lot of donors were in agreement that they are disappointed uh, with the president with some of his approaches to trade and immigration. Um, you know, there were some Trump supporters there as well, but. Um, but as, as far as a network as a whole, they took a pretty strong position this weekend. Okay. And again, it, it, it's fascinating seeing uh, this drama begin to develop going into the midterms. Um, so I guess the question is, I mean, these people have so much money um, and so much influence. How significant uh, would a shift in the Koch network strategy be uh, for the Republicans? The Republicans have counted on the Koch network to get them reelected for at least the past decade at this point. So the, the Koch network coming out and saying that they're not just going to uh, fund, uh, they're not going to back someone just because they're Republicans. They want to see Republicans who are standing up for conservative principles, who are standing up to the president when it comes to issues of trade and immigration. Um, and they're not just going to uh, spend money on them because they're Republicans. They, they made a pretty big announcement again by 
by saying, um, by using the North Dakota Senate race as an example, they said the Republican there, Kevin Kramer, who uh, is an ally of the president, is someone that has not been a principled conservative. So that's not someone they're going to support. Um, so that was you know, one big uh, kind of race that the, the Republicans are counting on uh, to win that seat. But they said they're not going to support Kevin Kramer just because he's a Republican. All right. Tarini, I want to ask you about a different aspect of the president's tweet there, because I, the Fergalicious line, if you will, where he was like, they really like my tax cuts, oh, this yeah. and that. Mm. Um, the Koch brothers are extremely, extremely rich. What does it say that we have a president who who basically claims to be an economic populist, a man of the people out here basically being like these rich guys really like what I'm doing? <laughs> right. So he said that, uh, you know, you've gotten richer off of my policies, which is actually something he reportedly also said at Mar-a-Lago to his members over there. So you're seeing this contrast in the way the president talks to his supporters at rallies versus the way he talks to rich people. But it kind of actually proves the Koch's point here, because the, the Charles Koch has argued for years that the policies that he supports and the people he supports don't have anything to do with his corporate interests and how much money he makes off of them. So by the president basically saying, hey, why are you guys against me? I made you rich kind of proves their point that they don't care about the money when it comes to uh, their positions on policy issues. You played yourself, Trump. You played yourself. <laughs> well, um, Tarini, as always, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. All right, listen, up next, Stephanie speaks with Lindsay Stanberry about side hustles, of which we all have many. Stay tuned. Even the bodega cats. Even though you gotta have a side hustle. This is Save the Day, brought to you by Wendy's 4 for 4 meal. Moody tweeted, a regular job isn't going to cut it nowadays. You have to have a side hustle. True words, Lindsay Stanberry is the work and money director of Refinery29 and author of Refinery29's upcoming book, Money Diaries, and she is here to hopefully help me or all of us with our side hustles. Side hustles. Yeah, it's, it's the new thing, it's the gig <laughs> economy. Thing. Yes, it is. Thank you so much for coming on to talk yeah, about this. Yeah, always fun to be here. So Refinery29 spoke to three women who had taken mm -hmm. on side hustles, and yeah. they had kind of a variety of experiences and a variety of economic backgrounds. You know, yeah. there was a few moms in there. So what do you think is the difference between a side hustle and a full-on second job? I think it's a little bit of semantics. Mm -hmm. um, I think side hustles, you know, there's two ways to look at it. It's like the way that you make some extra cash to like do fun things or pay off your bills. Or it might be that, um, extra gig that you're doing that is like a passion project for you beyond your regular day job. So it kind of depends on how you want to define it, but I think there's a little room for interpretation. These women had some really creative side hustles. They really did. Um, there was a lot of like online survey filling out. Um, one of them was a secret shopper. She was pretty cool. Um, and then there was a woman, my favorite was, um, she was a part-time, her and her partner he was a photographer and she was ordained and they would perform elopements. Yes, she was so interesting. She was so interesting. She kind of just set up this whole business for herself yeah. without, you know, having a ton of experience in the wedding industry or anything. And or it seemed anything. to be going pretty well. Yeah, she really liked it. But her complaint was that she was always doing it on Saturday nights. So her social life went out the window. Yeah, I mean, that. I, that's, I think that's <laughs> yeah, hard for that's, everyone in the wedding industry. <laughs> that's part of the having a side hustle, right? Exactly. So what do you think, besides the extra cash, are reasons that people would take on a side hustle? I think that if you're really um, 
if you're unhappy in your day job, you might do it. Um, if you're not unhappy in your day job, but you need, you have some creative itch that you need to scratch. I had a friend who was in tech and she had a zine on the side that was about like female hip hop artists. I don't think that was ever gonna be like a day job for her, but it was a really cool side project. Yeah, for sure. So obviously I have one of the personalities where if I have a free hour in the day, I want to fill it. Yeah. Where I'm just always like, what can I do next? Blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's really hard when you have a full-time job and a side hustle yes. and friends and family yes. and hobbies and everything to actually take some time for yourself. So if someone is, you know, like me, who they're constantly filling their day with all these different side hustles, trying to make some extra cash, mm -hmm. what's a way to have a little bit of balance in your life? Well, I think that if you've got a creative side hustle, it's really important to remember that in order to be creative, you do need downtime when you're, there's like quiet or you're like zoning out. Um, so I think it's like learning to say no. I think the internet's talking a lot about saying no right now. Have you noticed that? Yes. Um, so I think that if you really want to be successful in that side hustle and in your day job, um, you probably also have to learn to not take on too much. I know that can be hard. And if you need the cash, then sometimes, honestly, it's just, you know, sleep when you're dead. <laughs> That's my right? motto, at least. That's mine, too. <laughs> so we had, a, we had a tweet from someone who said, Kayla said, I need to find a side hustle, but I'm not good at anything. What mm -hmm. advice would you give to someone like Kayla? Because I, I have a friend when we were producing the segment that I, I was telling the producers about, I have a friend who, you know, works in graphic design, but on the side, she just makes chokers and sells them at a boutique near her house. And I'm like, okay, that's great. I can't make anything. I'm terrible at crafts. Yeah, I am too. So, <laughs> you know, for those of us who don't have an extremely creative, you know, thing in their back pocket, what's something yeah. that people can do? Well, I mean, I think there's more and more opportunities online all the time. There's sites like Flex Jobs where you can go and find opportunities. Um, you can read the story, the woman who was a secret shopper, you don't have to have any special skills to do that. You just have to have time. There's a lot of survey taking. Sometimes you only get um, gift cards for that, but you know, if you're getting ready for the holidays, you could bank a bunch of those and then shop with those or hand them out as Christmas gifts. Yeah, that's a great but idea. But I think you don't have to necessarily have some secret choker-making talent in order to have a side hustle. There was one woman in particular, I believe she was a mother, who was trying to supplement her partner's mm -hmm. income, who had all of these different apps that she used to make yeah. money. Yeah, and not did. gonna lie, when I read this article <laughs> last week, I downloaded a ton of them. I haven't made any money yet, but she claimed you can make a lot of money. So yeah. what are some of these apps? Um, there's a bunch of different ones um, that are in the article. Sorry, I don't know them off the top of my head. She also said she found a lot of them on Pinterest. So I think like a Google search of like quick money-making apps, there's a plethora of them out there. Yeah. For sure. Well, Lindsay, yeah. thank you so much for joining for me. me. I'm going to be rich now. Like, yeah, I hope so. Like or at least have some extra spending cash. Exactly. That's all we need. We want to hear from you. What made you start your side hustle and how did you do it? Let us know using the hashtag AMCDM. Up next, Isaac is sitting down with author Simon Rich. Welcome back, I'm here with Simon Rich, author and creator of the TV series Man Seeking Woman and Miracle Workers. His latest collection of short stories, Hits and Misses, is a hit in my opinion, and it's out now. Welcome, thank you for coming to the show. Thanks so much for having me, great to be here. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah, I wanted to start with the short story. You wrote a short story from the point of view of Paul Revere's horse. Yes, it's a bitter tell-all celebrity memoir uh, from <laughs> the horse's point of view. Um, 
Paul Revere, of course, most famous for his famous Midnight Ride, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, where he said the British are coming and it was this big deal. Uh, but his horse, Otzi the horse, feels rightly that he maybe deserves more of the credit for the ride since he's the one who physically did all of the riding. He put in the exertion and yeah. he doesn't get all of the attention. And then in the end, Paul just kind of yelled a thing <laughs> uh, and Otzi got turned into glue. So he has, a, he has his own perspective on, on what happened. <laughs> on, on how he feels about it. Yeah. Do your ideas always come with that kind of like absurdist twist? Yeah, I always, um, I always, my strategy is always to tell like an old story uh, in a new way. Mm. So like, uh, I have a story called Unprotected, which is about a teenage boy who's trying to lose his virginity, which is a very old story that's been told in hundreds of movies and sitcom episodes. But that story is told from the point of view of a condom living inside of the teenage boy's wallet as he waits and waits and waits to be used as the months tick by and turn into years. Uh, and so it's a coming of age story for this, the condom and not the boy. <laughs> not the boy. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, of getting very old. Um, I, did, I, did, I wanna ask, because you, you just brought up sitcoms yourself, like you, you've written so many great short stories, you've written books. Thank you. Uh, you also write TV episodes, movie scripts. Is there any different approach you have when writing these things? Yeah, I mean, every medium gives you uh, different opportunities. I think like, Obviously, with TV and film, the, the biggest advantage is that you have the variable of actors, which can make something a, a whole lot better. Uh, if you're going to have, you know, Dracula talking, it'd be nice if you can get, like, Bill Hader to do a Dracula voice. That's going to take it to a higher level than just uh -huh. words on the page. But there's also uh, something about prose that lets you uh, do certain things you can't do on the screen, like, mm. you know, a story from the point of view of a talking horse. Uh, Mr. Ed, you know, it, it's, it, it's like we've improved on Mr. Ed, mm -hmm. but any kind of talking animal on the screen that's going to sort of take you out of the reality. Mm -hmm. um, but if I just say to the reader, imagine a talking horse, the reader kind of meets me halfway and, and goes there. Mm. And it can be kind of realistic in a way it never would be on the screen. The, the brain can kind of do that. Yeah. Uh, another a, a theme kind of throughout a lot of these stories I felt like was aging yeah. and getting older. Yes. Um, almost to this point where I was like, are you okay, Simon? Because, man, you're only 34, right? Mm -hmm. And you've accomplished so much. Do you, do you feel like you're a little obsessed with like, looking back at your life? Why, why is aging so important to you right now? Um, I think it's because I just had a kid, and so it's mm. very much on my mind that there's a, a new generation that is uh, coming up and taking the reins, and uh, there's a story in, uh, in, in Hits and Misses about a, a struggling writer and uh, his wife is pregnant, and they do a sonogram, and they see uh, a penis, so they know, okay, it's a boy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they see a pencil, and the doctor explains that they're going to have a writer. <laughs> and uh, the father becomes increasingly upset, because in every sonogram, we realize this unborn fetus is working on like the great American novel, and it's this masterpiece. <laughs> and uh, his own novel is going poorly, <laughs> and it's about his you know competition with uh, with his unborn child. With his unborn child. Yeah. Do you feel that? Do you because you you also there's the Simon Rich character, right? And, right. And you're just like kind of this spoiled writer that's had everything handed to them. Is yeah. there like are you? I feel like you're beating up on yourself a little bit there. Is that like a character to you, or is that a self evaluation? I mean, it's it's not to it, it you know. It, it's 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 hard not to have a little bit of guilt and uh, and shame when you write jokes for a living. It's you know it's such a I'm so grateful to get to do it and uh, 
you know, it's it's a, it's an enormous privilege, and I, I uh, but yeah, of course, it's, it's you know, you're not exactly uh, saving the world. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to be a little hard on yourself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I have like one story called Sellout that's from the point of view of my great great grandfather Herschel, mm. who was this hard scrabble immigrant, uh, a Jew from Eastern Europe who fled the Cossacks and came to this country with pennies in his pocket. And in the story, this next part is fictional. Uh, he falls into a pickle vat at the factory where he works, and he's brined for a hundred years uh, and preserved. Uh -huh. and then he emerges a hundred years later in contemporary Brooklyn, and he meets his great-great-grandson, me, a joke writer, <laughs> and he is completely disgusted and horrified by the, the privileged uh, uh, way in which I live my life. And, you know, I'm, I'm, when my internet is slow, I'm cursing the god that brought, him for brought his people <laughs> forth from Egypt, you know. Uh, and so I think it's just important to... Uh, have a little bit of perspective about about the you know context. I do almost want to say to you though, I think your great great grandfather, if he did fall into a pickle vet yeah. and was uh, saved into, I think he'd have some love for you too. I, just, uh, I, you. I, I do, appreciate. I do, it. I do want to say that. Another theme in, uh, in a lot of these stories are artists who kind of have to let go of their dream. Yeah. Who 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 aren't able to do the thing that they were maybe hoping to do. Um, yeah. Is 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 that. Uh, something that you feel? Are you seeing it in some of your friends, maybe? Uh, do you maybe think art is a little less important to you now that you're a father, as it used to be? Or Right, right, right. Um, good question. Uh, I mean, I'd, I love making art, obviously. I've devoted my, my, my life to it, yeah. and uh, it's still my favorite thing to do, is, is to write every single day. Uh, and uh, I think when you get older, uh, in any job, you start, start to kind of realize your strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's, uh, there's, there's some power to that because you're like, oh, I know how to write this kind of story. But there's also a sort of sense of loss. Like I remember when I was in college, uh, I would sometimes try to write a detective story mm. or I try to write you know, science fiction or horror. And now I don't really attempt those other genres anymore. I don't take those big swings. You just get a little narrower. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's a good. It's a good thing, but there's also uh, some loss associated with it. Do you kind? Of, do you something? Do you want to? Do you want to maybe take a crack at at something out of your comfort zone? Uh nah. <laughs> You're like I'm good uh, at what yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. I'll stick with that. Speak, st stick with this one gimmick. Speaking I think. of being good at what you've done, you've written for SNL. You've written for Pixar. You have accomplished all of these things that so many people, especially comedian writers, it's what they aspire to do. Is there anything like? kind of behind the scenes or shocking or disappointing for you, like stories you'd want to share uh, with, with folks who maybe are like, oh, that's the golden ring. And then when you get there, it's maybe not what it was cut out to be. I, I mean, it's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, at, at, its, at its best, you get, you're writing with your friends. Mm -hmm. That's really, especially with television, that's, that's what it's all about, um, is you're in a room with, with very funny people and you're learning lessons and you're learning about how to get better at writing from them mm -hmm. and uh, it's thrilling and, and I think uh, um, so much of what I know about writing books I learned in television writers rooms mm -hmm. from uh, you know working uh, with and, and for excellent writers. Uh, could you just shout out who are some people that you feel like you've really learned from whether they be friends or sure. mentors? Yeah well I mean when I got to SNL uh, the head writers were Paul Appel um, and she's like one of the funniest people, you know, of the last 50 years in show business. And, and Seth Meyers uh. were my bosses. And you could literally write a sketch and you'd take it to them and they'd always read it immediately and they'd uh, tell you what was working and, and, and what was wrong and, and how to fix it. 
and uh, it, it was invaluable. It was invaluable. Um, you're also, I know you're turning uh, your novel, In God's Name, one, in, yeah. into a TV, yeah, one of your novels, In God's Name, uh, into a TV show, Miracle Workers, yeah. right? Um, what, uh, it's gonna take place in the afterlife? Yes. Yeah, so, and what can we expect from it? So Steve Buscemi plays God, Oh, so you've got casting going. You oh, are cooking. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, we're shooting. All right. And he, uh, he's, he plays God as this, he's the CEO of Heaven, Inc., uh -huh. which is the uh, gigantic, mismanaged, uh, inefficient <laughs> company in the sky that runs Earth. Uh -huh. And it's like it's a nightmare. It's like, you know, budget cuts and uh, obsolete equipment, and everything is dusty and grimy. And so he, uh, and he's got an inbox full of uh, unanswered prayers that are so like screwed up, he can't even like bear to look at them. No and organization. It's a nightmare. And so he just decides in the first episode uh, that he's going to uh, retire and pursue his, his new dream, which is to open up a restaurant. Oh, God's going to open up a yeah, restaurant. Yeah, Awesome. I'm super excited. I'm sorry. I love Steve Buscemi. Me too. So that sounds... He's, he's great in the show. I can't wait for people to see him on it. He's Absolutely yeah. wonderful. I can't wait. All right, man. Well, listen, thank you, Simon. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you coming Thanks on. Thanks for having me. Hits and Misses is available now. I really recommend it. Don't take my word for it. Conan O'Brien says Simon Rich is a comedic godsend. Uh, more AM to DM in just a moment. It has been 10 months since the Harvey Weinstein story broke and kicked off an entirely new aspect of the Me Too movement started by Tarana Burke. As we hear new stories of men accused of misconduct and updates to old stories, we wanted to ask, where does the Me Too movement stand as of now? Uh, here to help us answer that question is Katie J.M. Baker, BuzzFeed News investigative reporter, and Jacqueline Friedman, a writer, educator, and activist. Thank you both so much for joining me this morning. Thanks for, having me. Thanks for having me. All right. So on Friday, The New Yorker published Ronan Farrow's expose about Les Moonves and the culture of CBS as a corporation. Uh, BuzzFeed media reporter Stephen Proberg tweeted, a smaller but nonetheless striking thing in the Ronan Farrow CBS piece that media people have been stunned by was Anderson Cooper going on the record to defend Jeff Fager and 60 Minutes culture. Um, hasn't this year uh, taught us that you don't know what you don't know is what Stephen Proberg's point was. So, Jacqueline, let's start with you. Uh, why do you think, with everything that we should be learning, why are people still so ready to defend people who they know are accused of sexual misconduct? I think in part it's because they think that sexual predators and sexual abusers are monsters and therefore the people they know and like can't be sexual abusers, which is a really pernicious myth, that one that we're going to have to get an out at the root if we're going to really make systemic change here. Uh, I think Anderson Cooper probably thinks, hey, I know him. He's a good guy. He wouldn't do this stuff. Uh, and that's just not how it works. Yeah. To use an analogy, it seems like it makes me think of people being like, my neighbor can't be racist because they haven't put a burning cross in their front yard. You know? Exactly. <laughs> or like when you see like neighbors interviewed after like a mass shooting and they're like, he seemed like a nice, quiet guy. Okay, well, to that point, uh, Megan Garber of The Atlantic wrote this story that I was really appreciative of, the familiarity fallacy um, about Les Moonves. She focuses on him, and she says, the ease with which you can recognize wrongdoing in a stranger, but not someone you know intimately. So to that point, uh, Jacqueline, to uh, what extent do you think this familiarity fallacy um, is at play with Les Moonves in particular? Oh, I think it's absolutely at play here uh, that people like him, that he's done favors for them. They feel warmly toward him. He also makes the company 
a kajillion dollars. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons that psychologically the people in power to do something about less moon biz don't want to process this information. Um, but what we need to move past is this one at a time. Is this guy guilty? What's going to happen to him narrative and start looking at exactly these systems like that, what happens when you're familiar with somebody and you're friendly with him psychologically so that we can really change the cultures like you talk about at CBS and elsewhere so that even if Les Moonves leaves, he's eventually going to retire, even gets doesn't get fired, that there doesn't come another Les Moonves after him. Mm. Well, Katie, uh, you've been reporting on these issues for most of your career and you've done it incredibly so. Um, have you noticed any changes in the last 10 months in attitudes of people you're speaking to during your reporting? Definitely. I think for what feels like the first time powerful men are facing consequences for predatory behavior, in some cases, pretty immediate ones. And I think that that's giving victims more confidence and encouragement to speak out, knowing that by doing so, even though it will be really hard and involve risk, it might actually make a difference. And I do think people feel more encouraged to tell their stories. But I agree with Jacqueline. I think it's really important to go beyond reporting on individual perpetrators and dig into the systems that have covered up this misconduct for decades. Yeah. And, and Katie, based on your reporting, are, are there any um, positive examples that you can point to where an organization, or in your case, often like a school, a college, uh, you know, kind of took this comprehensive approach to the big picture that you both are pointing to? No, not at all. Okay. I'd say that in all of my reporting, what I've seen is unfortunately that institutions like to pass the trash, meaning that they don't want to deal with alleged misconduct. So they just give an employee a glowing recommendation and allow them to move on elsewhere. And that's why I think that the conversation around Me Too has to look beyond punishment or shunning and focus on, you know, what do we want to happen to these people, especially if they are people that are in our lives that we consider a good person or a friend. Mm. Well, Jacqueline, last week, uh, we also saw a 19-minute R. Kelly song called I Admit It that we all had to endure one way or another. Uh, the stories of his abuse, of course, have been percolating for years, like for an entire generation. Um, but frankly, nothing substantive has been done. Uh, how do we combat the fatigue that comes from hearing the same things over and over? How do we overcome this sense that perhaps with people like R. Kelly that justice will never be served? I mean, I disagree that nothing has changed with R. Kelly. In the last year or so, since a couple of women of color, black women, founded Mute, the Mute R. Kelly movement, uh, he's started to really hurt. Producers are backing off him. Spotify is iffy about him. Uh, you know, concert venues aren't hiring him. And some of his concerts are getting canceled. And that's why he, I think that he published, I admit, you know, this 19-minute uh, sort of mess. Yeah. <laughs> in which he, he says, like, I'm hurting for cash yeah. because you all aren't supporting me. So um, I think that we need to think about these systems and institutions, not just the individual men, but the systems and institutions, and think about what they're in it for, right? Like, Chris Hardwick is back at AMC because somebody at AMC decided it's a better financial decision to bring him back than it is to fire him. Mm -hmm. I think that we need to show them that maybe that's an incorrupt cap. Incorrect calculation. 
An incorrect calculation. Uh, Katie, uh, in April, you wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, uh, these men, uh, asking the question, what do we do with these men, right? Uh, what do we do with these guys we hear about? And, and you talk and write about uh, the fight over campus sexual assault policy, in many ways a precursor, perhaps, to the Me Too movement as we know it now. Um, Katie, what did you learn about the problems with the way institutions prefer to handle accusations of misconduct with students? Yes, well, like what I was saying before, what I saw is that institutions not knowing what to do or how to handle a situation, instead of taking responsibility to actually address the behavior, they'll just let the person, whether it's a student accused of sexual misconduct or a professor accused of sexual harassment, they'll often just let them transfer. And there's not much thought to where they're going to go next, what kind of abuse they're going to do there. And what I was trying to get at in my op-ed is that we have to move beyond just thinking about punishment, not because accountability isn't important, but because these men just, they're not going to disappear. They're into thin air. You know, they're, they live amongst us and we have to figure out what we expect from them and, and what we really want to do with them going forward. Right. And, and one last question in your op-ed. You also say this. Me Too is also supposed to reflect a spectrum of coercive behavior, not just crimes that should lead to prison sentences. Bill Cosby is one thing, but many p women don't want the VP of sales who got too handsy at the Christmas party to be banished forever, let alone go to prison. Um, if they're faced with what looks like no other option, will women be more likely to report him or less? And I think this is reflected in so much of what you both have said, that the, the focus on punishment leads to perhaps um, things actually becoming more difficult to talk about and report. So how different um, are the, how, how much are these different behaviors conflated? Yeah, I mean, I think what I see oftentimes is that people simply ignore repeated abuse within their communities because they're too uncomfortable to confront it head on. If the solution is just, you know, banishment or nothing, people don't want the, they don't want to make a report or they don't want to ask somebody about alleged misbehavior if they think that they're going to go straight to prison. And so if we don't talk about that spectrum and in other ways to confront sexual assault and harassment, we end up with a lot of stuff just being swept under the rug. And Jacqueline, one last question for you. What is the best way to have a productive conversation about the bad behavior that avoids flattening out the nuances? Well, I think that we have to ask about who is important in the conversation. So I hear a lot of pushback to the Me Too narratives of late being like, well, you're ruining the fun and you're making, you know, sex not fun anymore. And I always like to ask fun for who, right? So, you know, if somebody's coming forward and saying, hey, these interactions, in fact, aren't fun for me, like Les Moonves, who's saying, I didn't do anything wrong because after I made a pass at people I had power over, I d didn't get try to get them fired, which is not what they said, but that's not the point. Um, you know, like maybe what we need to be focusing on is actually the, the targets of this behavior and centering their needs instead of thinking about, oh, well, it's too mean to say that Aziz Ansari is the same as Harvey Weinstein. Uh, we should be actually talking about the targets and, and what would make life more fun and productive for for us. I like that. Fun for who? Great question. Well, Jacqueline, Katie, thank you both for all of your work, as always, and for joining us this morning. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Up next, Isaac and I are going to read some more of your tweets.
welcome back. Wanted to open up with this tweet from Kirsten Baptiste. Hi, Kirsten, how you doing? Hey, Kirsten. Uh, I work six days a week at my main hustle. I ain't doing one more thing. Six days a week. Because here's the thing. And uh, that was obviously in relation yeah, to the, the conversation side about side hustles. Here's the thing about side hustles. I, I think it's really cool that people are finding ways to joyfully pursue and engage their side hustles. Like, that's great. Like, joy, I think, makes us better at whatever we're doing. But the other thing is a lot of people are doing side hustles because we're not being paid enough money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's like, it's a whole thing. And that is, that's, that's a whole part of the conversation. Yeah. But people that are joyfully pursuing, I mean, you joyfully pursue a side hustle, mm-hmm. I joyfully pursue a side mm-hmm. hustle, um, but then there's also, there's a side hustle that you gotta do because you gotta make rent mm-hmm. and you're being overworked and that's really rough as well. And that's why we talk about money so much. Speaking of, we do talk about money a lot on the money, show. Money, 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 it's uh, We're also gonna talk about Beyonce's side hustle <laughs> as the editor of Vogue. Uh, on the subject of Beyonce's upcoming Vogue cover, Nichelle Stevens says, I'm I'm tired of these black firsts. Should have happened a long time ago. And Ooh. that in reference, obviously, to the photographer. Yeah, we need a, a name for it. Like like Sandra Oh, like, oh, the first Asian mm-hmm. actor. It was like, what? You know, just like, Fucked uh, up first. Uh, and it's weird because in those moments, it's like, I don't want to steal the glow. I mm-hmm. really mean that. You know how important it is for me to celebrate excellence. And I think it's inspiring and, and encouraging. But also, like, we have to also own like our bullshit. Mm-hmm. We have to own our like our lateness. Yeah. Um, but Fucked up yeah. first. Fucked up first. Fucked up first. <laughs> Fucked up first. <laughs> that came a little too effortlessly to you. Here's a tweet from Senior Martinez. Ooh, a conspiracy bee theory. Hot take. <laughs> Beyonce is about to announce her pregnancy on the cover. Oh, y'all in the pregnancy thing. I mean, you know, I don't know. What? How many? Isn't is that a thing right now? Is that a it's conspiracy? A it's a bit of a thing. It's a bit of a thing? It's a thing. There was like a picture of her at one of concerts and... People. All right, for all now, right. let's let Beyonce live, all right? But then if it comes back, we'll pull that tweet back. <laughs> <laughs> You're a prophet. All right, listen, we asked you how you define consent. Kate Dahl says, when I ran the Athens sexual assault prevention campaign, this was our working definition oh, crafted like by that. committee, endorsed by local sexual assault centers. Can we leave consent that up for a second? Consent is voluntary, sober, enthusiastic, verbal, non-coerced, continual, active, and honest. Whew. Lack of consent That's pretty great. equals rape. That's yeah. pretty good. That is pretty good. That's what it is. Uh, and to change gears one more time, as we love to do here at, at Us, one final theory about the shark thieves. Mm. <laughs> From Softy38, promo stunt for the Meg! <gasps> that's actually, that's pretty good. Oh, she did that. That's pretty good. That's a really, that's a really good theory. That's a really good theory. Wow. I'm, I'm just mad saying, we didn't think about that. PR companies out here wilding. That is that is one of those jokes. I'm like, I wish I had done that. Nice I job, Softy. Nice I job. Uh, thank you for that tweet, Softy. And thank you to our guests, Simon Rich, Ishmael Andaro, Tommy Obaro, Emma Luke, Tarini Party, Stephanie McNeil, Lindsay Stanberry, Katie J.M. Baker, and Jacqueline Friedman for joining us today. What a show. Thank you. We will see you tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. Woo, woo, woo. 10 a.m.? Do you remember woo, what woo, day woo. tomorrow is? 10 a.m. It's Wednesday. He's getting there. He's getting there. We'll see. <laughs>